Well, hello there, everyone. Welcome back to Pick 6 Movies. That's right, you have found your way to the one show on the internet legally allowed to call itself a movie review podcast. Everything else potentially actionable. So look, what we do on the show is we take six movies based around a central theme. For this season, which happens to be season nine, we're calling this one Hail to the King, baby. All about the work of Stephen King or the cinematic adaptations thereof. We're going to provide you with an introduction and give you a little history about the movie, sort of a who, what, where, and when of the movie. It's hard in some cases to come up with a why. And then myself, Bo Ranstall, and my old pal, Chad Cooper, are going to goof on the movie a little bit. It's a good time, nobody gets hurt, and at the end, there's a prize. Okay, there's no prize, but there is a game show host this time around. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's put a good time up on the board and turn our attention over to Chad Cooper for episode three of season nine of Pick Six Movies, the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, The Running Man. In 1972, John Olson opened a record store in Northwest Washington, D.C. called Record and Tape Limited. At the time, Limited was added to the end of a store's name to give it a little more class, sort of a, an English flair. Olson's wasn't a lot to look at, but for eclectic music lovers, Olson's became an iconic landmark for those seeking unusual and somewhat unique pieces of music. Employees of the store described it as the kind of place where you might find Elvis Costello browsing vinyl up front and Casper Weinberger in the back picking up a special order. Now, it ran under a series of names, but as the business grew, the store began to sell not only music, but books as well, and eventually it changed its name to Olson's Books and Records. Over time, the store expanded to Alexandria and Virginia and Bethesda, Maryland, among other locations. It was a regional chain book and music store before the rise and conquer of FYE and Barnes & Noble and Best Buy and all the other big box retailers. But Olson's wasn't corporate. It was a place for people who loved music and loved books, and this included both the customers and the employees. It was a family-owned business that became a family. Olson's was a place where certain kinds of people could not only find a home, but a community that shared their passion for whatever it was that they were passionate about. Olson's was a store that was always looking to the future in the products that it sold and the clientele that it would attract. It almost seemed to just draw in a very special type of customer, as well as a very unique type of employee that would work for less money because Olson's was the kind of place that offered more than just a paycheck. As one person put it, the stores were freak magnets that attracted a rarefied type of weirdo. Olson's was a real-life version of Reddit, with employees and customers specializing in very specific niche categories of culture and music and literature and all forms of creative arts. One of those employees was Steve Brown, Steve Brown was a man who dabbled in writing here and there, and he was a very avid reader. Working for Olson's in Washington, D.C. was the perfect place for a literature junkie like Brown to discover new and unusual works of fiction to fill his passion reading. One day at work, Steve Brown got a page over the Olson's intercom. He had a call for him waiting on line five. Steve Brown answered the phone and heard a voice on the other line say, Steve Brown, this is Steve King. All right. You know I'm Bachman. I know I'm Bachman. What are we going to do about it? Let's talk. 
Steve Brown, an unassuming music and bookstore clerk, figured out that Stephen King, one of the most popular authors of the time, was publishing novels under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. Brown was very familiar with King's work, so much so that he was able to recognize similarities in the language and style of writing produced by Richard Bachman. In 1985, Richard Bachman released his fifth novel, Thinner. It was his first hardcover novel. And the book was written with a seemingly greater sense of awareness that it was trying to misdirect readers as to the true identity of the author. The plot of Thinner had a more traditional horror focus compared to the other Bachman novels. The novel Thinner tells the tale of a big fat lawyer who gets cursed by a gypsy in such a way that he keeps getting thinner and thinner no matter how much the big fat rude jerk lawyer eats. Brown got his hands on a copy of this Richard Bachman novel when it arrived at Olson's and he immediately had a gut instinct that he was reading a Stephen King work. What to do? What to do? Well, if you're an employee of Olson's, you start investigating these crackpot theories that come your way and you pursue hunches originating from your gut. Seeing as Steve Brown was living in the greater Washington, D.C. area, he visited the Library of Congress. Yeah, that's something you can go do, people. And he examined the copyrights of all of the books published by Richard Bachman. These novels were registered to Kirby Macaulay. Who is Kirby Macaulay? Well, none other than Stephen King's agent. A clue. And the one remaining Richard Bachman title that was not registered to Kirby Macaulay well, the title of that book was Rage. And guess who Rage was registered to? That's right, Stephen King himself. <laughs> Do you smell that? That is the smell of smoke coming out of a gun barrel. So what do you do if you're any self-respecting, avid reader of eclectic literature slash amateur conspiracy theorist slash employee of Olson's books and records? You do what Steve Brown did. You write a letter, possibly spelling each word using individually cut out letters from various magazines, and you send that letter to Kirby McCauley, the agent of Stephen King. And in that letter, you would let him know that the jig, as one might say, was in fact up. Now, it needs to be mentioned that Stephen Brown really didn't want to out Stephen King's secret identity. He was an Olson's employee, after all. He wasn't a narc. And honestly, there were others at the time that were fanning the embers of this soon-to-be-proven-true literary conspiracy theory. And so it was that Stephen King picked up the phone and called Olson's. King was put on line five to wait, and one of the most famous authors ever, well, he sat as the unassuming Stephen Brown made his way over to pick up the phone. Stephen King published his first novel, Carrie, in 1973 with some limited success. However, it was the paperback publication of the book and the subsequent movie adaptation that were both wildly successful. Stephen King's next novel, Salem's Lot, was a massive success when it hit paperback, and King continued cranking out more novels, each more popular than the one before it. Here, King began to wonder if the success of his books were due in part to the novel being a Stephen King novel as opposed to judging the book based on the quality of the writing. King even questioned if his own success was artificially bolstered by the movie adaptation of Carrie, which was really popular and it was really good. And the question really centered around were people reading Stephen King novels because they saw and liked the movie Carrie? And that's when Stephen King decided to publish some of his writing under a pseudonym to see how audiences and critics responded to the work. 
Using another name, the judgment on the book would confirm or refute any concerns that the author had regarding his talent and his popularity. Additionally, publishers were dead set on King only publishing one book a year as to not flood the market with Stephen King novels. And thus Stephen King's nom de plume was born unto the world to deliver a series of novels authored by the one and only Gus Pillsbury. Yeah, Gus Pillsbury was the original name Stephen King selected as his literary alter ego. The name was taken from his maternal grandfather and with a little afterthought, King thought that that might be a little too easy for people to figure out, should some nosy bookstore clerk start rooting around trying to unmask this literary disguise. Now the legend goes that Stephen King had a Richard Stark novel on his desk and he was listening to some Bachman Turner Overdrive. I'm hoping it was You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. And taking a little from the former and a hint from the latter, bingo bango, Richard Bachman was born. But Iconic author Stephen King didn't stop with just a name. He created a whole life for Richard Bachman. Bachman was born in New York. He served four years in the Coast Guard and then 10 years in the Merchant Marine. After his time in the service, Bachman started a life in New Hampshire. His day job was running a dairy farm while pursuing his passion of writing on the side. He was married to Claudia Inez Bachman, who it turns out was the person that took the photo of Bachman that was featured on the back of his novels. The couple had a son who tragically drowned in a well at age six. It's all pretty good, right? Oh, and that photo of Richard Bachman, the one you can see on the back of the novels that was taken by his lovely and talented wife, Claudia. Well, that photo was in reality, the insurance agent of the aforementioned Kirby Macaulay, Stephen King's literary agent. Gets even better, right? You know what, let's get to the Bachman novels. The first book to be published by Richard Bachman was Rage a novel that Stephen King began in his late teens. Rage tells the story of a high school senior who gets expelled from school and gets a handgun from his locker and shoots his math teacher and then holds the math class hostage. Rage came out in 1977 as a paperback and it didn't make any real waves in the world of paperback fiction. I guess the subject matter was just a little ahead of its time. Richard Bachman's next novel, The Long Walk, was released after Stephen King published The Stand under his own name. The Long Walk takes place in a dystopian future and centers on a 16-year-old boy who competes in an annual competition of stamina and wits known as the Long Walk. A hundred boys must keep walking at a pace of at least four miles per hour. And get this, there's no finish line. Last kid standing wins. Slow down below four miles per hour and you get a warning, three warnings, and you're permanently out of the game. Permanently. Bachman's next novel, Roadwork, which came out after King published The Shining. Roadwork was written with the intention of showing that Stephen King could do more than crank out horror novels. Roadwork was written shortly after Stephen King's mother died of cancer the year prior, and the novel delves into topics that explore the challenges of human suffering. The fourth novel Richard Bachman published came out just before the release of King's collection of novellas, Different Seasons, and it was this fourth novel that was the inspiration for the movie that's featured in this very episode. I'm speaking, of course, about the 1982 sci-fi classic, The Running Man. As is often the case, the novel, The Running Man, is a bit different from the movie adaptation. Now, the basic story's the same. There's a game show called The Running Man. The book takes place in a dystopian futuristic world and the contestants on the show are hunted by mercenaries. That's all the same, but there's some real notable differences. 
The Running Man was originally written in 1971 during the era of the Vietnam War, and the novel borrows a bit from Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and George Orwell's 1984 and Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Reportedly, Stephen King, I mean Richard Bachman, wrote The Running Man in under 72 hours. I wonder how you do something like that. Critics cite the novel as having some stark contrast between King's broader body of work and the short stack of novels written by Bachman. The novels under Bachman's name were darker than King's collective published works, if you can believe that. In the King-authored novels, things get all gruesome, but the majority of the time the story ends with the protagonist surviving somewhat triumphant, kind of. The works of Richard Bachman, ugh, not so much. Case in point, in the novel The Running Man, the hero, Ben Richards, well, he ends up crashing a hijacked plane into a skyscraper where the TV executives are holed up and kills not only all those folks, but like thousands of other people, and heck, he even dies too. When it came to adapting The Running Man to the big screen, this was at a time when film producers were looking at any Stephen King title that they could get their hands on to spin into box office gold. But in the 1980s, Richard Bachman was still a man of mystery that nobody had ever met. Enter George Linder. Linder was a successful businessman and entrepreneur who owned a company that supplied wheelchairs. Linder came across a copy of The Running Man in an airport in 1982, and Linder decided he would get into the movie making business and The Running Man was his ticket in. Because that's what you do when you want to be a movie producer. You just show up and make movies. What an insane business this is. Linder contacted Richard Bachman's agent to inquire as to the cost of the film rights for The Running Man. And it turns out that it was a lot more than one would expect from a book with less than 100,000 paperback copies in print. Linder and the publisher finally agreed on a price of $20,000 up front and another, much larger, amount due on the back end if the movie ever went into production. So Linder had the rights to the book and he needed some partners who, you know, knew how to make movies. Enter Rob Cohen and Keith Barish, who, as fate would have it, were setting up a new film production company to make big action movies. Cohen and Barish had years of TV and film experience between the two of them, and this got things into motion. Linder showed up with his $20,000 paperback novel movie rights to The Running Man, and he showed them off to his new production partners. And Cohen and Barish looked at Linder, and they thought, hey, you're a real lunkhead for paying so much money for the rights to this book. And don't forget, you gotta pay a whole bunch more money if we ever turn it into a real film. Cohen and Barish thought that Linder had made one of the biggest bonehead moves in movie-making history. That was until the amateur literary detective work of Olson's employee extraordinaire Stephen Brown revealed one of the biggest secrets in the world of published fiction. Linder and his film production partners, Conan Barish, they remained oblivious to the true identity of Richard Bachman even after the news broke more broadly. It was the book's publisher who finally clued these three into the true identity of the author of the book to which they owned the movie rights. When Linder found out, he said he felt like he'd found a Rembrandt in a Kmart. Not only did they have a Stephen King novel on their hands, these lucky filmmakers negotiated the rights to use Stephen King's name in conjunction with the marketing of the movie. But that was about all the connection that Stephen King had to the adaptation of The Running Man. In an interview with Cine Fantastique, Stephen King said, it was totally out of my hands. I didn't have anything to do with the making of the movie. It doesn't have much in common with the novel at all, except the title. 
That lack of creative input is no better visible than in the casting of the book's main character, Ben Richards. In the novel, Richards is a gaunt, malnourished, unemployed, regular old Joe of the future who has a sick child and a sick wife for whom he has to steal medicine to keep his family alive. Richards is all but forced to participate in the murderous game show, The Running Man, as his only way to save his family. In short, he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, film producers did try to find somebody that could more align with the novel's description of the main character, but Arnold Schwarzenegger was growing in his worldwide box office appeal, and he could guarantee that no arguments were going to be made regarding the budget needed to make the kind of movie that the filmmakers envisioned. Arnold was fresh off of two Conan films, Terminator, Commando. He was the bankable action movie star needed to make this movie a true blockbuster. And so the character of Ben Richards, and the movie overall, was written as a vehicle for action hero movie star Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ben Richards went from dystopian down-on-his-luck everyman to a disgraced law enforcer. Filmmakers got rid of that sick kid and that sick wife. Who needs them around? And at this point in the production, the film budget was set at $10 million, but that number would eventually almost triple to $27 million, of which Arnold got $5 million to star in the movie. And with increased production costs, George Linder had to sell his wheelchair company to cover the growing cost of the movie's budget. Welcome to show business, Linder! You know, let's get back to how the novel The Running Man and the movie adaptation were even more dissimilar. In the novel, The Running Man game show lasts multiple weeks and it's on TV every night. Filmmakers decided to change that and have the show all happen in one magical evening. And the murdering hunters went from anonymous killing machines in the pages of the book to cartoonish marauders of death with nicknames and personas more in line with a video game boss. In the novel, participants volunteered to participate somewhat, but in the movie adaptation of The Running Man, most of participants are forced to appear on the show as a form of punishment for crimes committed or as a way to gain their freedom. This allowed viewers of the TV show to be more indulgent to their bloodlust, a la the Roman Colosseum. Yeah, you know, well, at least they kept the name the same, right? It was reported that there were a few different directors that were considered to helm the adaptation of The Running Man. During pre-production of the film, George P. Cosmatos, who directed Rambo, First Blood Part II, was considered. His vision was to make The Running Man as an allegory to the Holocaust, but he left the project due to budget disputes. Up next was Alex Cox, who had previously directed the films Repo Man and Sid and Nancy. He was interested in directing The Running Man, but committed to making the film Walker, starring Ed Harris, so he couldn't work on the project. Then Carl Schinkel, who directed Denzel Washington in The Mighty Quinn, he was considered for a short time, a very short time. Next came Ferdinand Fairfax, a British director who had a career in directing for television and he wanted to make the adaptation of The Running Man into an actual television broadcast, kind of like The Truman Show, but with a lot more murder. But that approach posed its own set of narrative problems. So next, filmmakers finally landed on Andrew Davis to direct the film. Later in his career, Davis would go on to direct Steven Seagal in Above the Law and Under Siege. He also directed Harrison Ford in the film adaptation of the TV show The Fugitive. Davis stepped in on this thing and he got things up and, well, running, man. <laughs> Davis worked with screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza to finalize the script. D'Souza has a string of successful screenplays to his name, including 48 Hours and Commando, Die Hard, another 48 Hours, Die Hard 2. 
Beverly Hills Cop 3, Judge Dredd. So this movie was right in his wheelhouse. Director Andrew Davis handled all the required pre-production work, including the hiring of former In Living Color Fly Girl Paula Abdul to choreograph all of those sweet dance numbers. Davis was integral to getting everything ready for the cameras to roll. The first scene Davis directed was the prison break scene. Then Davis filmed the famous ice rink battle. Then Davis was fired. Eight days into shooting, the movie was already $8 million over budget. Producer Cohen saw the dailies for the ice rink sequence and he said, that's it, Davis is gone. So the filmmakers needed a new director to take over this movie and they got none other than Paul Michael Glazer, the man who played Starsky on the hit 1970s TV show, Starsky and Hutch. And before you ask, Starsky was the one with the dark hair. Glazer directed numerous episodes of Starsky and Hutch back in the day, and he later went on to direct quite a few episodes of Miami Vice. Sure, directing The Running Man would be his first time directing a major Hollywood blockbuster, but Glazer came with some solid recommendations, namely Michael Mann, who was the executive producer of Miami Vice. Mann knew both producer Cohen and actor-turned-director Glazer. The thought here was that Glazer's experience in directing for TV made him the perfect candidate to come in and shoot the film on budget and on time. And with two days to prepare and no authority to change the script whatsoever, Glazer came in and got the job done. It took 61 days and finished $17 million over the original budget of $10 million. And one of Andrew Davis's most notable contributions, well, before he got fired, was the casting of Richard Dawson as the movie's villain and the gregarious host of The Running Man. Dawson was perfectly cast to play the charismatic and nefarious game show host due to his many years of experience hosting the real-life game show Family Feud. Dawson was pretty much just playing himself in the role that was practically written for him. Maria Conchito Alonso was cast as the female lead. Prior to this role, she was featured in numerous telenovelas in Latin America and was an accomplished singer, receiving three Grammy Award nominations. Alonso had previously starred opposite Robin Williams in Moscow on the Hudson and in the Blake Edwards comedy A Fine Mess with Howie Mandel and Ted Danson. That movie's a real stinker. The Running Man also has a real mix of supporting actors, including Yafet Koto, who played Parker in the original Alien, former running back for the Cleveland Browns. Jim Brown shows up for some fun. Retired professional wrestler and future 38th governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura is in there. The guy who played Grossberger from Stir Crazy, he shows up. Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac, yep, he's there. Dweezil Zappa, he's there. Yeah, it's been a long time since you watched this one, hasn't it? The Running Man was set for release in the summer of 1987, but Arnold Schwarzenegger had another movie set for that summer too, a little movie called Predator. And Arnold stepped in and flexed his muscles and got the release date for The Running Man pushed out because he felt Predator would be a better movie, which it was. But The Running Man came out on November 13th, 1987, and it was tops at the box office, toppling the Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, Dead Rabbit classic, Fatal Attraction, from its eight-week reign as the number one movie in the United States. The Running Man stayed at the tops of the box office for five weeks straight, closely followed by a reissue of the animated classic Cinderella and the sequel to Teen Wolf, aptly titled Teen Wolf 2, starring Jason Bateman. That movie also stinks. Now, ultimately, the movie pulled in $38 million, and it was a modest success. 
The Running Man went on to leave a broader legacy long after it left the theater. It inspired a handful of real-life TV shows leveraging similar themes, including the wildly popular American Gladiator. The Running Man was the centerpiece of a documentary about the rise of reality TV, as it in many ways predicted the popularity of competitive reality-based TV game shows. And even the star of The Running Man, Arnold Schwarzenegger, well, he went on to host his own reality-based TV game show. The Apprentice. Well, that was after America elected the original real-life game show host of that show to be president of the United States. That's right. The people of the United States elected a game show host to be president. Oh, man. You know, let's get back to Richard Bachman and Stephen King. Outwardly, Stephen King seemed unfazed by the revelation that he was Richard Bachman. But there was part of the whole unveiling that kind of upset him. When Thinner was released under Bachman's name, it sold 40,000 copies. When Stephen King was cited as the author, sales were 10 times that number. Richard Bachman gave Stephen King some privacy, some anonymity. Stephen King ultimately proclaimed that Richard Bachman was dead and that he died of cancer of the pseudonym. Richard Bachman's four novels were released in a single collection with a new introduction by Stephen King titled, Why I Was Bachman. King would go on to explore the idea of an author writing under another name in his book Misery, which was actually slated to be the next Richard Bachman published book after the release of Thinner. King reflected on the life and death of Richard Bachman, and he asked the question, what if Richard Bachman didn't want to stay dead? And he answered that question in the novel The Dark Half. And that book was pretty successful, and both Misery and The Dark Half found their way to the big screen as well. Seven years after Bachman's death, King created more fiction within fiction as Richard Bachman published a new posthumous novel after Bachman's made-up wife found some of his unpublished manuscripts. The Regulators was a Richard Bachman novel released alongside the Stephen King-authored novel Desperation, where both novels had the same characters but all in different roles. One man writing as two authors, manipulating the same cast of characters in totally different ways. Wrap your head around that one, people! Woo! Back at Olson's bookstore, Line 5 blinked as Stephen King patiently waited. Steve Brown picked up the phone, and Brown's suspicions were confirmed as to the secret identity of this world-famous author. Steve Brown stood in Olson's bookstore and spoke to Stephen King on the phone for a short while. King gave Brown an unlisted phone number and requested Brown to call him later that day. Steve Brown's discovery that Richard Bachman and Stephen King were in fact one and the same led to an exclusive interview for Brown where he and King spoke and discussed everything related to the fictitious author, Richard Bachman. Brown said of the interview with King, he was very relaxed and very funny throughout. He didn't seem all that upset that I'd found him out. He was extremely gracious and said that he wouldn't talk to anyone else but me outside of simply admitting it, that mine would be the only lengthy interview on the subject. Brown and King spoke over the span of three straight nights and the interview itself was published in the Washington Post which provided definitive proof that the two men were, in fact, one and the same. Richard Bachman, however, refused to comment on the subject. But what of the Running Man film? Is it possible that a loose adaptation of a novel written by a man that didn't exist, set in a world yet to come, could be any good? Does this futuristic dystopian social satire set in the future hold up, considering the fact that it took place a few years in the past? And how much of this movie's budget was spent on spandex? 
Well, there's just one way to answer all of these questions. Let's get the only man I'd like to have by my side while running through a city hellscape while being hunted by maraudering madmen, Mr. Bo Ransdell, to break this movie down one step at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, survey says, show me the running man. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and I am joined with the man who can run farther and faster than anyone else I know, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Clearly a lie. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. (laughs) I'm doing well, despite your attempts to turn this podcast into a house of lies. (laughs) No, I'm very excited. It is is the running man. This feels like a big deal. A lot of people really love this movie. Uh, A lot of people are wrong. Yeah, neither of us are those people. No, we are not. Let's get into this one, because we've got a lot to say about this movie. I like that we start the movie off with the TriStar logo with that flying Pegasus animation. Does it ever cease to amaze you how crappy those wings on that horse look? (laughs) You know, you're right, but I I do like the... That it, there's something comforting about that when a movie starts that way. It's like, I don't know that this is going to be good, but I like that. <laughs> and then we get our opening credits to this film, and it's pretty amazing. It is this 8-bit font of the movie's title that looks to be all futuristic with this Paxar animation of this like muscular running guy like trotting along. And then the movie title comes up and it says, The Running Man. Yeah, it's a real, like, Filipino crime reenactment. (laughs) This jogger broke into a title factory. (laughs) And then we get a nice little crawl to uh, Uh set up our movie. And for those who haven't seen this movie, let me just sort of set the stage. By 2017, that's a couple of years ago, Bo, Mm -hmm. the world economy has collapsed. Mm -hmm. Food, natural resources, and oil are all in short supply. A police state divided into paramilitary zones rules with an iron hand. Television is controlled by the state and a sadistic game show called The Running Man has become the most popular program in history. All art, music, and communications are censored. No dissent is tolerated. And yet, a small resistance movement has managed to survive underground. When high-tech gladiators are not enough to suppress the people's yearning for freedom, more direct methods become necessary what does any of that even mean i don't know but i was i was enthralled it, it's way better than the movie the the crawl is the best thing that happens in the whole movie plot wise where it's like whoa oh my god what happened climate change ruined everything holy shit i mean that's that's modern day problems in the hoary old year of 2017 now but yeah like all the rebels and stuff it's like wow that yeah i really have an, an impression of this movie as being ginormous in scope And then it turns out that the whole movie is set in two warehouses, (laughs) which is a real disappointment and a spoiler. Sorry. We cut to the night sky over Los Angeles. That's where this movie takes place, right? Yeah. It's Los Angeles and the environs. (laughs) And so 
Arnold is uh, our hero. Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. is flying uh, a chopper, and <laughs> there's there's some genuinely terrible Arnold Schwarzenegger acting here. But it's early Arnold. It's before he really found the charm and the swagger that became the Arnold persona. He's very he's he's right. kind of in like his sophomore slump of becoming the Arnold that we know and love now. Right, he didn't know yet to not try to act <laughs> and to just be himself. <laughs> so Arnold's flying this helicopter, and he's got this co-pilot, and he's got these three other armed soldiers in the backseat, and below are the gritty streets of Los Angeles, and a bunch of people are riding over food, and there are 1,500 unarmed civilians down below. And then Arnold gets an order from his higher command to proceed with, plan alpha which means kill them all and then (laughs) arnold responds i see the crowd is unarmed there are lots of women and children down there all they want is food for god's sake the hell with you (laughs) refuses to do it and then the peanut gallery in the helicopter is like the fuck and starts to make like hey we're gonna make you shoot these women and children Mm -hmm. and he just punches everybody out well he first he punches out his co-pilot then he jumps in the back seat and starts beating up those guys and then he gets tossed out of the helicopter but chad let's let's explain he gets tossed out of the helicopter because his bloodlust is such that he just throws a guy into the flight stick all willy-nilly right because he just he has to kill now <laughs> because of this it's you know it lists over and ah he you know, almost goes out the helicopter. He's hanging upside down like Clara Clayton at the end of Back to the Future 3. You know, when she's all dangling upside down off that runaway train. And when he's hanging out above this futuristic metropolis, the sounds that come out of him sound like he's having a stubborn splinter removed. <laughs> he's all like, ah, oh, ew. You would expect more shrieks of terror that you're going to fall and splat to your death. I just kept hearing Tom Arnold saying, you give that turd hell, buddy. (laughs) And they pull Arnold back into the helicopter. And then one of the soldiers uh, who kind of got smacked around a little bit, he looks at Arnold and he says, you're going to fry for this. And then another soldier says, I'll see you in hell. And then he takes the butt of his gun and just clocks Arnold on the head. And I like it in movies when people get knocked unconscious with gun butts or being pistol whipped. I don't think it works like that in real life. If you hit someone with the butt of a rifle, you're probably just going to piss them off or you might kill them. But I don't think if you smack them in the head, it's an instant off switch of human consciousness. So where does this fall on the coconut scale? Like if somebody hits you with the butt of a gun, could you forget who you are? and think you're a movie star Mm, no getting hit with a coconut makes you think you're somebody else getting hit with the butt of a gun knocks you out what if i'm the professor on gilligan's island Mm -hmm. and i create a gun made mostly of coconuts namely the butt of that gun and then i use that to knock out gilligan will he come to thinking he's the skipper yes okay that's exactly how that works (laughs) but when this guy says to arnold he says he's gonna see him in hell Why would he say that? Because Arnold is a good guy, right? He's already established that he's not going to kill innocent civilians, especially women and children. I think it's because he almost killed everyone in that helicopter. Yeah, spoilers. The rest of the movie, he's a horrible human being who will just randomly kill willy-nilly. He goes to prison and prison makes him the criminal, Chad. That's the lesson of this. I'm always intrigued by characters that tell another character that they will see them in hell. A character that says that they've either done some really, really bad shit in their life lives like so bad that even the grace of jesus christ himself cannot offer up redemption i mean they've done some fucked up shit or they're the ghost writer 
Ooh. Mm-hmm. Maybe this guy's planning on committing suicide because, you know, based on our silver bullet conversation under those circumstances, he knows where he's going to end up. It's in hell. I hope he's not pregnant. Anyway, so they, they take Arnold to the Wilshire internment facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically just a big rock quarry that they're in. Smelting plant, rock quarry. It's it's like where Fred Flintstone worked if you had a neck collar that would cause your head to explode if you left the perimeter. Yeah, and that's the most interesting thing about this movie that is never a thing again, Mm-mm. where they have the collars that blow your head off. Sadly, it only happens one time in the movie, and it doesn't happen here when they introduce it, where there are these laser gates or something. They have red for stop means don't cross, right? because your head will blow off, mm-hmm. and then green is, hey, you're cool to cross this, this point. But they smash rocks, and they yes. melt down metal. It just looks like the world's largest shop class. And quite honestly, if this movie wasn't taking place in the future, if it was actually set in the 1980s when it was made, there is a 100% chance that the fabulous Thunderbirds Tough Enough is going to play as all these sparks fly. Oh man, that would have been so much better. Especially because Arnold is carrying a goddamn eye beam <laughs> on his shoulder. He looks like a white John Henry, man. I mean, I know I'm not building anything here, but... I have a good, uh, <laughs> and th- so he's wandering around with one of those. And then we see some new prisoners come in mm-hmm. and we're introduced to our nerdlinger character. Uh-huh. Weiss. Weiss, who sees uh, as these new prisoners are let in through the, the electronic uh, neck blow up gate. He spies the code that the guard is putting in. It's six, five, three dash nine X in case you're ever sent there for crimes that you didn't commit. Right. Dude, it is a poorly implemented means of prisoner incarceration and a preventable measure to keep people in line. And let me tell you why. Number one, when they deactivate this perimeter that causes people's heads to explode when they cross it, a lovely and pleasant female voice announces quite loudly across the entire detention center, Sonic Perimeter is down. Sonic Perimeter is down. Run for your freedom. Now, is your chance your head will not explode at this time yeah it's like if you're driving and you hear uh, the distant call of a police car car hidden (laughs) speed trap activated number two exploding people's heads has got to be a nightmare to clean up for the workers right it's worth every penny and minute chad (laughs) call mr wolf i mean if you're a prisoner in the in this joint the wilshire internment facility and you see some guy's head pop off Mm -hmm. like the top of a pez dispenser except with a lot more blood involved right and someone was like hey we're gonna make a break for it you'd be like you can go fuck yourself unless you hear the lady talking then you're like run right but who like how how quick is the change here that's the problem is like how how quick does go from you are totally safe from having your goddamn head blown off to sorry your head is now 40 feet from your carcass well you can't hear that because your head got blown up you can for 20 seconds chad that's science so back inside the prison steelworks <laughs> arnold and he's got these two buddies um laughlin who is played by yafet koto and uh weiss who is this nerdlinger that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And he's played by Marvin J. McIntyre, which speaking of Back to the Future 3, he was the undertaker in that movie. <laughs> Why is the nerdlinger? He just wanders over and as you mentioned, he sneaks a peekaloo at the secret deactivation code that's on this computer in bright red letters and numbers, each of which is about the size of my palm. You could read this deactivation code from the other side of the prison yard. It's the Joe Biden getting a text font. The guard working on this computer is like, hey, 
no peeking, nerdlinger. This is top secret. <laughs> and so Weiss, the nerdlinger, he gives Arnold and Laughlin the high sign to let him know that he's got the secret code. So Arnold and Laughlin create a distraction just by beating the shit out of each other. And immediately, all of the guards just start shooting the prisoners left and right during this prison yard fight. I have no idea what the purpose of any of this is. Theoretically, Arnold and Yafet Koto fighting should be a distraction that draws the guards and then nerdlinger enters the code and bada bing bada boom Mm. or that's the sign for the prisoners to riot and nerdlinger disarms the thing and they all make a run for it but this movie does all of that all at once and i'm like i don't was the fight a signal to the other prisoners because the other prisoners start to riot too or is it just such a powder keg That they're like, as soon as we throw a punch, this place is going to go off like New Orleans on New Year's Eve. (laughs) You're absolutely right. That is what happens here. Because as they're beating the shit out of each other, somehow Arnold finds his way to a catwalk or high in the sky scaffolding. And it's here we get the first of many action hero quips from Arnold in this film. And he says to this guard that he grabs, give you a lift. Uh And then he picks up this guard and tosses him into the air where he falls to the ground below and the guard dies. And if you're scoring at home, this is the first of 14 people that Arnold kills in this movie. Also, give you a lift. Uh, Chad, do you have a better one? Not for this scene. Because later on, the action hero quips in this movie are really D-list. They're not very good at all. My alternate to give you a lift is, uh, this place is a real dive. (laughs) And then tosses them <laughs> so arnold is wantonly murdering guards left and right at this point yes and the code isn't working no and and nerdlinger says some bullshit about oh the signal's blocked by the walls and meanwhile he's just like oh no what the fuck is wrong these idiots don't know nothing from signal so i'll just tell him that but i have no idea this thing is broken then the code kind of works for a second it's like perimeter off perimeter on and he's like ah and I don't understand how any of this is working. I don't understand the technology that is turning it off, kind of. Well, I think they're inside the sound stage and they're like hey maybe we should go outside the sound stage to see if we can make this work so they go outside just open the door hold it up in the air raise it up in the sky maybe you'll get the better signal carla bring me the tinfoil they go outside and um they hear this sound that says perimeter restraint collars armed and then this guy chico he takes off running because he heard that it was off and it's on and it's off and it's on and chico don't listen or maybe he doesn't speak english i don't know anyway chico runs past the perimeter and his head explodes explodes yeah it's pretty good as soon as pop goes the chico we then hear the perimeter lady voice say perimeter is deactivated run for your lives prisoners for real this time well arnold shoots one more guard at the computer on his way out just like see you in hell sorry it's sticking with me here's another weird thing during this whole sequence there are giant font treatments of opening film credits plastered all over the place it is very distracting Uh again if anybody's listening to this episode and you're making a movie don't nobody care about the opening credits of your film just stop it just make a movie put that shit at the end for the people who want to stick around i like them (laughs) but i like that that they credit the story to richard bachman which of course you talked about the introduction and one thing that is kind of a fun little bit of bow trivia i own two richard bachman books with the richard bachman name very nice like i have i have a paperback copy of rage and i have a hardback of thinner hmm 
I don't have anything. Mm-hmm. They are for sale because I'm trying to pay off some hospital bills. Some gambling debts. That's what I call my hospital bills. Because <laughs> if I don't pay them off, they're going to take my thumbs, Tommy. Come on, just one more time. Like like old times, you know? Look, I only need three small. I'll get this back to you on Monday. So we're now in Los Angeles proper and we're in the future, you know, two years in the past. And it's a total police state. There are public announcements for kids to turn in family members to earn double reward points, whatever that means. There are giant TV jumbotrons all over the place telling people to obey and that seeing is believing. And as I watched this movie or rewatched it, because I saw this in the theater, hell, maybe with you, I was shocked to find out that this movie came out only a couple of months after RoboCop and it was released two years before they live because the whole film feels very derivative of those other movies that are arguably better than this film, but apparently not. I think it feels derivative because it only does it a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are moments in this movie that are like, oh, here's a little bit of satire, whereas like all of robocop is kind of a satire and it sprinkles in just enough to make it feel like you're watching a real honest to goodness movie but it doesn't really do anything with those ideas other than like what if america went fascist yeah and there was this game show but they don't really ever pay that off i mean it gets toppled but it's not like they're they're not making any real specific commentary with it in a in a way that that's satisfying could the filmmakers have seen robocop in the summer and then peppered in the fake tv commercials for climbing for dollars like the the original story i don't recall going that route with it i do think it is weirdly prescient though when it's just like the year is 2017 and everything just turned to shit <laughs> you're like well all right i mean i'm with you so far the nerdlinger arnold and yafit koto are getting out of dodge and they get found in the like kind of sleazy filthy marketplace of the poor and the downtrodden of this society yeah the kind of place you would find a dweezil zappo hanging around dude any tough dweezil zappa shows up in a movie it doesn't happen that often like you you really got to be in rarefied air to run into this problem but it's immediately <laughs> like oh this ain't gonna be good he shows up in this red beret and he grabs this little trio and takes him back to meet mick fleetwood of fleetwood mac what the ever living <laughs> fuck chad i don't know you know every stephen king movie has a thing that bo doesn't need and mick fleetwood as this like aging rock star named mick <laughs> well you've hit upon the stephen king thing that bo doesn't need of the week this is worse than when tom petty showed up in the postman and that's an affront to god and man chad it's like the opposite of george carlin in bill and ted's excellent adventure whatever the exact opposite of a happily surprising cameo is of just something that just drains you of the will to live you're like oh god i hate fleetwood mac and especially mick fleetwood at, uh, at underground hq mick fleetwood starts taking off the explosive neck collars from these three prisoners and there's a brief discussion about how the government and the tv network because you know there's only one tv network right bo <laughs> maybe that's why the running man is the most popular show ever it's three hours long Long and it's in prime time on the only network available to tv viewers that's a pretty tough uh thing to topple <laughs> right you know you you got a counter program with bullets <laughs> is what arnold decides 
That's a pretty good one-liner. You can keep that one. These freedom fighters are talking about how they're going to fight against the government and the TV network that's brainwashing people's minds. And this group of resistance fighters, they all decide that they're going to go find the uplink satellite and broadcast the truth, man. Okay. I like the fact that Arnold in this movie is having none of it. It's just, y'all a bunch of pansies. Running around with your satellites, who look at me. He's wearing a Gold's Gym sweatshirt, and then he lights up a cigar, <laughs> which really punctuates the fact that he does not give a fuck. He's like, yeah, 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 the truth and all that bullshit. Let's end this scene and get on with the movie. I think I'm supposed to be killing someone. And so <laughs> the next scene is him just getting the fuck out of the movie. Yeah. Where he's like, I'll see you later. And I apologize if I'm stepping on a joke of your shad. But... <laughs> Him telling Yafet Kodo, hey, stop teaching the Constitution to all those street kids, is one of the single dumbest lines in movie history. <laughs> well, that that shows us that Yafet Kodo is concerned about the children and the future and letting them lead the way, because Nerdlinger is basically just a pencil neck and glasses who hacks things. That's all we know about him. Somebody on the set should have stopped this scene and said, whatever we do, we do not need this Austrian hunk of beef saying the word constitution. He can't do it. Constitution. The Constitute. Arnold jumps on the back of this flatbag truck with a bunch of day laborers and just off he goes into the city or something. We cut to the ICS Network headquarters. And I'm not really going to comment too much on how much this movie gets wrong or right about the future. Because really, this film is more of a commentary on the current society of the 1980s in which the film was made. In my opinion, focusing more on the relationship between American TV viewing, um, the audience, the shows, the potential impact of future government, totalitarianism. It's not so much about they got this right, they got this wrong. Except it's almost 100% right. I I don't know that it's 100% right. I think it's 100% crap. <laughs> yeah. So Richard Dawson shows up in this movie finally, who is kind of great in this. He's amazing. He plays Damon Killian, uh-huh. the host of the, the Running Man. And Damon Killian, his first name is almost Demon. His last name has the word kill in it. It's a pretty good villain name. If I were named like lucifer murder puss <laughs> that'd be pretty good richard dawson hosted the family feud in its original incarnation and were you ever a fan of family feud bo oh yeah absolutely i was my grandmother didn't like it whenever richard dawson would solicit a kiss from a black woman oh because she was racist well she definitely wasn't woke you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's also, you know, 1970, blah, 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 blah. Right. But Family Feud, I mean, depending upon sort of when you were raised and how you were raised, it was really a staple of TV viewing once upon a time, which when you think about seminal TV shows in history, the Family Feud is certainly, you know, one of those shows. And in fact, you know, Bo, it, as I think about it, it, it seems like that this would be a really good opportunity for us to play The Feud. Bo, nice. are you ready? I am so ready to play the feud. All right, Bo. We've got the top five answers the on Ransel the board. family. <laughs> what? I'm sorry. I was calling out the family names. <laughs> we got the top five answers on the board. Here's a question. Great. Besides Richard Dawson, Bo, can you name someone who has hosted the family feud? 
Steve Harvey. Let's see, Steve Harvey. Oh, you've got one answer, Bo. Can you name mm-hmm. anyone mm-hmm. else that has hosted The Family Feud? Louis Anderson. Let's see, Louis Anderson. You got three more answers, Bo. Can you name three more people that hosted The Family Feud? Almost certainly not. That guy who killed himself, I think his name was Greg or something. Show me that guy who killed himself. That's right, Ray Combs. That's right. Bo, you have two more answers left. Can you name two more people that hosted The Family Feud? All right, this is besides Richard Dawson? Yes. Oof. Uh, I don't know if I know the other two. Do you have another answer, Bo? I, I... Oh, that hurts my parts. I hate that. All right, no, I... Oh, no! Bo, so close, so close. John O'Hurley... Yeah. Who you know as Peterman from Seinfeld and Richard Karn, who was the second banana to Tim Allen on Home Improvement. Oh, Home right. Improvement. Mm, that is a real disappointment. Back to our movie. So Killian, our bad guy, he just works for this network, right? He's not like the puppet master of this police state. He's like Simon Cowell or Guy Fieri. He's not the top of the pyramid when it comes to this oppressive societal tyranny all around the characters in this film. No, the the impression that the movie gives is that he the power that he has comes from the popularity of the show. He's important because the show is important. Killian rolls up in front of this headquarters and he gets out of this stretch red limo and there's just this screaming crowd of fans to meet him and Killian's throwing around peace signs and this toothy right grin and he's really working the crowd and as you pointed out earlier, Richard Dawson as Killian in this movie is fantastic. Yeah. I think this is what Richard Dawson was really like. Just swearing and being a narcissistic (laughs) piece of shit. There's a great moment to put him firmly in the villain role where as he and his assistants are rolling through (laughs) the lobby of this place, this guy, this poor janitor is mopping the floor and happens to run his mop over Richard Dawson's shoe as he's passing by and Richard Dawson spins on him and the dude is immediately like, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Luthor. It was, I just, it was, oh, oh, and Richard Dawson is like, hey, it's okay, buddy. Hey we're pals here yeah you keep it up hey watch the show night pal see you later and they get in the elevator and he turns to one of his assistants and he says if that asshole is still in the lobby tomorrow when i come in you'll be mopping the floors next he's so great in this movie when people talk about 80s movies a lot of times they're talking about this kind of shit that these super broad villain roles where someone is so dastardly in the movie that they can't go 10 feet without doing something heinous to another human being and that's how richard dawson is in this movie is constantly fucking people over left and right and it's wonderful we cut to arnold and he's walking around the downtown of los angeles and he's smoking his cigar and he's wearing his gold's gym sweatshirt and he goes to this apartment of the future and he enters in the passcode beep bop boop uh, which opens the door and he walks inside when he goes in he sees women's clothing there and then arnold calls out edward edward and i'm like is edward a transvestite what's going on here edward 
I never judge your lifestyle, but you got to put these things away. We cut back to Killian, and he's walking around the the TV studio office, and he's just cursing at people and demanding coffee. And then we cut back to Arnold in Edward's apartment. And let me just say right now, this movie is not edited very well at all. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Among other things, but yes, you're you're right. Editing is one of its problems. We we didn't mention this in the upfront and when we were talking about the credits. One of the names listed here is Harold Faltemeyer, best known for Axel F and and doing the score for uh, Beverly Hills Cop. And this score is awful it is bad it's really i mean it's not just that it's dated even at the time it was not a very good score it's one of those things that drags the movie down and in particular in this scene when he's like supposed to be sneaking around in this apartment as maria conchito alonso is like coming in and she's like lights you know turn on the television like it's all voice controlled like alexa stuff Mm -hmm. the music here is very beverly hills copish yes and it was like, this does not belong anywhere near this movie. No. A science fiction future film, at any rate. But let's not step on the one of the most important things, which is, of course, the introduction of Captain Freedom and his workout routine on the on the Vitz tubes yeah. of the future. So Amber, the real inhabitant of this apartment, rolls in and she turns on her TV, and that's where we see this jazzercise exercise program hosted by Jesse Ventura. And Ventura says, Are you ready to sweat? Are you ready for pain? then you're ready for Captain Freedom's workout. And it turns out that Captain Freedom was like the greatest stalker in running man history. And for those who've never seen this, a stalker is one of the guys who just runs around murdering people on the show. It's like when I was a Navy SEAL back in the day. how i became governor of minnesota amber comes in and she's watching this tv program and she starts doing sit-ups um while sitting on a bowflex machine and she's wearing this sexy black lace lingerie and she also has pantyhose on underneath it i don't know what's going on in her head i'm trying to think of my routine when i come home And there is occasional exercise during that time. Does it involve pantyhose and a teddy? No, I never dress up for Like, I don't get sexy to exercise. She does. Where I'm like, oh, what if someone came in? <laughs> so her sexercise is interrupted by a TV news announcer that says, the police are going door to door looking for Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm like, what, in Los Angeles? The police are going door to door. That's just silly. No, they're not. Right. What are they, Grover's Corners? <laughs> and he just kind of jumps out of nowhere. He's like, hey, surprise. I'm the guy on the TV. Don't make a sound. Are you a friend of my brother? This is his apartment. His name is Edward. I think he might be a transvestite. Again, I'm not judging here. But I just need to know, like, are you t- are you sharing clothes? Is that how this relationship works? Amber says, What are you talking about? I live here. I didn't change the passcode to get into the apartment because, well, I'm an irresponsible renter. Well, the brother was sent for re-education a month ago. And so she got a great deal on this place that has no windows and we can't change the lock because the guy that owned the place before got his brain scrambled at a government center. And he's got to, you've got to put in the old passcode to change the passcode. Right. It's one of those. And just, yeah. So, uh, you know, he'll never be back. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know who he is. 
This is fine. Amber recognizes Arnold and she says, hey, you're the butcher of Bakersfield. And then Arnold says, it's not true. I was framed. It's a good delivery. And there's also a great moment here where they cut to the TV because, again, the editing is terrible. Awful. In time to see Jesse Ventura walk by strutting past the camera in this workout video Mm -hmm. in like a muscle pose just going, ha! And he's got this terrible, beautifully bronze brown hairdo wig. They said I could bring my own plier. (laughs) When Arnold goes after Amber, she runs around. And again, Amber's played by Maria Conchita Alonso. And when she runs around, she starts screaming, Ayudame, Ayudame. And I watched this with subtitles on and it simply said screams in Spanish. Yeah, I did the same thing. And I was like, I'm, they don't know either. And just like, oh, we assume this is Spanish of some type. We, here's some more bad editing as we interrupt the scene of Arnold chasing around Amber to cut back over to Killian. And he's with his TV producers and they're looking for new contestants for The Running Man. And Killian sees footage of Arnold escaping from the prison. And he looks up and he says, hello, gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, it's a real like, everyone get out of this room for a second. I'm about to drop my pants. <laughs> Ten, nine eight and he's like show me the picture of this guy escaping again enhance 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 look at that big (laughs) son of a bitch that's our next contestant how awesome is it that killian always has his pinky extended with that giant fat gold ring on it it's just the best he is a total piece of shit in this And one of his assistants is like, uh, sorry, you know, Mr. Killian, unfortunately, we can't get this guy because he's a military prisoner and military prisoners are off limits. We can only get like the federal stuff or whatever. And Killian is like, not for me. Give me the president's agent. And the, <laughs> the assumption being that we live in a world where the president has an agent because of the uh complete piece of shit world that we have come to live in sorry can you imagine a world bow where the president of the united states would have an agent for being on television (laughs) what a world yeah it's not depressing at all hey let's come back to amber's apartment yeah so he's like I need your travel pass. Uh, It's a little card. It's kind of like that German sort of deal. You have to have your papers. And he programs up a trip with this travel pass Mm -hmm. on the TV chat. To Hawaii. Then he's like, and you're going to come with me. Why should I go with you? Right. She asks why. And then he, she's on like a weight bench or something that is weirdly screwed into the floor. Yeah. It's bo- the Bowflex is bolted to the fake laminate that is installed in this apartment. And so this homunculus <laughs> just grabs the end of this Bowflex and lifts it up, tearing it free of the bolts right. and lifts it off the ground. And he goes, because I'll ask nicely. she's like oh well why didn't you say so and it's it's a real like (laughs) his girl friday zinger that they have going on here oh it's the worst off they go to the airport and arnold is dressed in a manner that screams hey look at me he's got this loud floral print shirt and this giant white fedora and amber tells him you're never gonna get on the plane and so arnold puts his hand on amber's neck and says i can snap your neck like a chicken (laughs) (laughs) which I was like, man, I could go for a rotisserie during this scene. (laughs) I don't think he's lying. I believe him when he says that he will kill this woman. Of course he can. He's a monster. (laughs) That can will. (laughs) Yeah. He has wantonly killed everyone in his way thus far. That is not helping his cause. 
he's already said, I have no political ethos whatsoever. I have no morality, nothing. Arnold and Amber get to this airport security checkpoint and the security guy asks for Arnold's travel pass. And so Arnold hands the security guard Amber's travel pass, which gets scanned. And so Arnold's good to go because you can scan someone else's travel pass and use it as your own in the future. Apparently you just have to have one. It doesn't matter. And you're cool. (laughs) Yeah. And, but yeah, right. Then he's like, so where's her travel pass? And he goes, oh, she put it in her purse. Hang on. He gets so misogynistic in this scene. He's like, Holly, did you leave it in your purse? She's got so much bullshit in this lady bag. She got her makeup and her brushes and the eyeshadow and the tampons and the maxi pads and the romance novels and the recipe books. And I think her period is in here and Gloria Steinem and vagina monologues and hashtag me too and hashtag times up and some cockamamie nonsense about equal pay. Am I right? Look, I think this one is a scarf. I don't even know why she has it in the purse. She says she has it in case she wants to take some food home with her. Where are we going to be eating in the airport? I told her. I like that the people in the line just start bitching and complaining after about, what, eight seconds? Yeah, it takes no time before someone's like, hey, speed it up, pal. (laughs) So the security guard is immediately like, all right, you guys, just come on in. You know, I got a quota to meet. I get it. I know ladies. I get it. Clearly, we are in an alternate universe where 9-11 never happened. <laughs> right, right. Also, I have this gun. I hope that's okay. And sure. I, I grabbed a couple oh, of bombs. Yeah, sure. I just happened to oh, see them. Yeah. You know what? Take my gun, too. You never know. You might need an extra. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, so Arnold's free and clear until Amber sees a member of the armed police state. And she just screams out, this is... Ben Richards, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the butcher of Bakersfield. And then Amber balls up her hand into a fist and she just clocks Arnold straight up in the dick. But he's so manly, it doesn't faze him at all. He takes a shot to the cock and he's ready to roll. I hope you know what snitches get. Spoilers, it stitches. <laughs> Arnold takes off running. Again, one of like the two scenes in this movie that he is actually a running man. And he runs across the tarmac and the police chase him down and they blast him with one of those nets with weighted balls on the four corners. And they kind of like snare him and he tumbles and falls. I'm like, this is amazing. Like that's just standard issue airport security weaponry. Yeah, well, it's it's good for Arnold's. It's, uh, it's good for kids <laughs> when they get out of hand. Zoos, less reputable mental hospitals yeah you're not just selling the airports chad also just some people you know there are some people out there myself included they're like i need a net i can fire (laughs) you never know arnold's in custody and they immediately take him to the ics network headquarters sure and they put him in this holding room and this metal wall slides up and it reveals killian on one side of the glass and he's getting a cigarette lit by his security bodyguard named sven i only mention him here because he's lightly important to the end of the movie it should also be noted that sven is played by sven ole thorson who is to arnold schwarzenegger movies what clint howard is to ron howard movies sven ole thorson is there and yeah and uh richard dawson shits on him because that's all richard dawson does in this movie is shit on people they were like bodybuilding buddies back in the day and he just put him in his movies going forward i'm pretty sure that like sven ole thorson knows where the schwarzenegger bodies are buried <laughs> and was like i'm gonna get a little of that hollywood money arnold and he's like absolutely you just keep your mouth shut which he does uh-huh. when killian sees arnold he's like hey cutie pie you know who i am <laughs> Arnold says, yeah, you're that asshole on TV. And Killian responds, 
funny. I was going to say the same thing about you. Killian tells him, he's like, hey, I pulled some strings to get you here. I want you to volunteer to be on tomorrow's broadcast of The Running Man. And Arnold says, fuck you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of his better deliveries in the movie, for sure, because it's two <laughs> one-syllable words. <laughs> fuck you. Well done. And we, But Richard Dawson, because he's a villainous shit, is like, yeah, you think you can you can refuse arnold that's fine i'm just gonna get your pals uh-oh and he shows them nerdlinger and yafet koto mm-hmm. as like if you don't play the running man they're gonna play in your place and you know arnold's like oh, you've you've won this round killian but i would kill you if this was you and me I would probably sell you out, Bo, because I would hope that you would do the same for me and just sell me out. She's like, fuck it. Fuck it. Send my friend. I'm good. Can I watch? I would probably look however I can pick you. (laughs) If that means. And it's not because I want you to get hurt. It's that I don't want to get hurt. Sure. I agree. That's where I am. (laughs) So you don't understand. I'm not like other people. Pain hurts me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also, let's face it, Chad, you're in way better shape. You stand a chance at least. I'm going to get whacked by that first ice skating motherfucker. I'm never making it out of the ice rink. Or Arnold agrees to be on the running man. So we cut to Arnold and he's in this science torture chair of the future. And these scienceologists are doing medicine stuff to Arnold to prepare him for his appearance on the show. They stick him with needles and they probe his asshole and stick a finger in his ear. It's all real suspect. I don't, I have no (laughs) idea what they're doing. It's real off the books. <laughs> they're putting in trackers, maybe, or they're drugging him so he can't perform well. I, I, none of this really matters. Not at all. But the barium is like, oh, this is how we trace them. And that's what they're given the IV of or whatever. Oh, and But it's all not a lot of nonsense. It's like, just gas him up until we need this homunculus for the show. And, and so we see Amber. She sees a news report of the, the escape of Ben Richards. Arnold. Uh, at the airport yeah but then they slip in uh the this video of arnold escaping the airport slips in like oh and by the way he also murdered these two people like shot him right in the face Mm -hmm. says the tv amber is like none of that happened like i was there that didn't happen but that's not true yeah (laughs) and then it cuts to a commercial of climbing for dollars Mm -hmm. which is a dude climbing a rope over a pit filled with angry dogs that's that's all right it ain't you know i'll buy that for a dollar but i guess it's something we cut to arnold in his cell and he has a court appointed theatrical agent who comes in to tell him that it's showtime and then we get a dance number that goes on way too long it's intercut with show prep and the producers and the camera guys and they're getting ready for you know this thing to be live on tv we cut to the the dregs of society out on the city streets and they're all placing bets and uh wanting to know who's going to be the first one to get killed on the running man and then we get to see the stalkers of the running man coming into the like the theater or the arena and there's gonna be a lot more on them later but then we cut back and there's even more dancing it's a lot of dancing. There's one kind of telling moment in the in the mix of all this dancing where Maria Cachito Alonso is in the hallway of ICS. That's where she works. And as she's walking down the hallway, she passes uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And they kind of look at each other all meaningfully and whatnot. And as, after he passes by, uh, her pal mm-hmm. is like, wow, you're lucky that he didn't kill you or rape you or rape you and kill you 
or kill you and rape you. Wouldn't that last option be preferred? I mean, if someone's going to rape me and kill me, I would prefer them to kill me, then rape me rather than rape me and then kill me. I think it implies that the guy doing it is sicker, but I agree with you. Like once I'm dead, do whatever you want. Maria Conchito Alonso is like, yeah, I wanted that too. Yeah. I mean, I can put the S's in the seeds. Why didn't he rape me? This co-worker says, a guy like that, I mean, what would stop him? And she's like, yeah, what would stop him? Why didn't he kill me or rape me? He must be a decent human being. Or something. And and there's some really good shots in here, too, of like Richard Dawson working the crowd a little bit and stuff. This the It's bookended by this dancing that, as you pointed out in the introduction, was done by Paula Abdul, but it is 100% just solid gold dancers it, it, doing solid gold goes on forever killian comes on stage Mm -hmm. as he is you know chatting it up and and introducing the the running man getting the the crowd hyped arnold signs his contract Mm -hmm. and we have a gag here where his court appointed agent is like hey do you need my back to sign the contract and totally not stab me and arnold's like yeah i think i've got an idea (laughs) and signs the contract and then stabs the contract into the the agent's back who like tries to grab him does a real hi 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 and kind of runs out of there meanwhile richard dawes is kissing old ladies and then introduces the first runner who is of course arnold and so they do like this whole video package of like you know ben richards is the butcher of bakersfield Mm -hmm. he's killed 120 people and and they show the clip of the opening of like the there are 1500 innocent civilians down there and except they recut it so that it's the headquarters saying like hey there are innocent people down there and it's Schwarzenegger saying to hell with you and I'll do it anyway and uh, murdering all the people is how they they framed all this and the crowd's into it and they're booing and everything's going fucking nuts the stupidest part of all of this trickery and editing is just the variety of shots and every consistent angle that they have to complete this ruse. I mean, it makes sense that the movie has this footage, but it doesn't make sense that there would be this variety of surveillance video and quality to stitch all this together. It's just knuckleheaded. There's a first person shot of him getting knocked out that happens in the video. <laughs> That's like, well, we're not even trying anymore. I get it. During the re-editing of this footage, there's bonus B-roll of just buildings exploding and cars blowing up and people screaming and running everywhere. But that's what this movie is. It's a bunch of stupid stuff that kind of makes me laugh and disbelief. Yeah, it is kind of dopey. And when he's uh, Arnold's led on stage in cuffs, Mm -hmm. then one of my favorite things that can ever happen in a movie happens where somebody just grabs his shoulder and yanks and he's wearing a breakaway like prison outfit. Mm -hmm. And underneath is like a silver and yellow bodysuit that will be his uniform. Yeah, it's spandex, form-fitting. Man, I secretly want breakaway clothes so badly. We can make that happen. The crowd goes nuts. Yeah, of course, because it's, you know... We're, we're, this is the tasty meat that we're about to throw to the lions. Killian then shows off some past winners, mm-hmm. which are like three dudes from the previous season who survived the, the running. Yeah, John Doe, uh, Danny, what's his name, and uh, Frank Deadmeat. Right. In this scene, they're seen in Hawaii with sexy girls. And all of these women are the kind of ladies that are suitable for working at a Hooters. And immediately, <laughs> you know, this is bullshit. You're like, yeah, these guys are all dead. They're 
they're not out, you know, living life fun in the sun. This is all horseshit. Right. Well, because the, you know, tropical backdrop looks like some Olin Mills bullshit. We then cut to Amber, who has now decided to go rooting around the secret files of the ICS network. Because, you know, Ben Richards didn't rape or kill her. She's gone looking for video footage and she finds a file aptly titled Butcher of Bakersfield Unedited Raw Video Footage colon do not show to public colon keep out of hands of revolutionary freedom fighters colon specifically Mick Fleetwood ampersand Dweezil Zappa yeah look that is that sounds ridiculous but literally one of the files is his labeled clandestine units <laughs> the whole point of being fucking clandestine is that nobody knows about it and you don't label the files that you call it like you know tax records or something so amber's rooting around this card catalog of files because that's how you keep digital files in a full fo- in a like a little sleeve like this and she immediately gets <laughs> right in a manila folder <laughs> Of just data chips. She gets caught stealing this footage by some mystery person. And we never really find out who caught her. And I got to tell you, I like to think that the person who caught her was that old man janitor who got fired for doing his job. And by doing this, he's going to get his job back and be in the good graces of the government and the TV networks. And you know what, Bo? Speaking of janitors... Oh, nice. It's time to play the feud again, Bo. Fantastic. I feel like I did so well the first time. How could this go wrong? Top seven answers are on the board, Bo. Here's the question. Bo, name a famous janitor featured in a major motion picture. The janitor from The Breakfast Club. Show me janitor from The Breakfast Club. Nice. Nice. You got one. Can you give me another famous janitor? Another famous janitor. Um, Matt Damon, uh, Goodwill Hunting. Show me Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting. Nice. Nice. You've got two, Bo. There are five more on the board. Oh, well, I mean, why even drag this out? Uh, Goddamn, famous janitor. You got three seconds, Bo. Yeah, I mean, has Nick Nolte ever played a janitor? Nick Nolte. Sorry, Bo, uh, you ran out of time there. You got two more chances to name five more famous janitors. Was George Carlin a janitor, technically? In, in Bill and Ted's? Show me George Carlin, technically, in Bill and Ted. That hurts. Bo, you got uh, one more guess here. One more guess. I feel like Forrest Gump must have been a janitor in one scene. Show me Forrest Gump in at least one scene. <laughs> Oh. Now now the audience has a chance to steal. Let's, audience. let's break this down. Bo, you got two out of the seven. Very right. quickly, show, like show me good. number seven. Melvin Ferd in the Toxic Avenger. Oh, geez, sure. I thought he was a high school student, though. He was a janitor. He had a mom. All right, fair enough. All right. Show me number six. Filch in the Harry Potter series. The one with the cat? Yeah. All right. Show me number five. God in janitor form in Bruce Almighty. I don't know if that counts. That it counts. He's God. He we was... surveyed a hundred people, Bo. He's also an electrician. He's everything all at once. <laughs> Show me number three. Elisa from The Shape of Water. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. And the number one I mean, answer, Bo, of yes. janitors from major motion pictures is Joe Dirt in Joe Dirt. Yeah. I, I feel bad for not getting that one. <laughs> that stinks a little bit. <laughs> Back to our live broadcast um, on this TV soundstage of The Running Man. Killian surprises Arnold by telling Arnold that not only will Arnold be competing in The Running Man, but his buddies, Yafet Kodo and Weiss, the nerdlinger, well, they're going to be headed into the battle zone with him as well. And then Arnold <laughs> gives it this really good under the breath, son of a bitch. <laughs> Yeah, it's real good. <laughs> we get him telling Killian, or giving Killian his famous line, Hey, Killian, I'll be back. And Killian has probably a better response to that, which is only in a rerun. <laughs> they're, they're having fun with it, Bo. Uh-huh. And then all three of them are launched down some Space Mountain tubes. Mm -hmm. They're in these like weird, they look like bobsled cages. It almost looks like the frame of a dune buggy or something. They zoom down these tubes and they spend a lot of time in these tubes. They spend longer zooming around these tubes than Napoleon Bonaparte did going down that water slide in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> That's a long I think it's because it's one of the few effects that looks pretty good. Yeah, and they, they show it off. Right, because what else are you going to do? You're going to show more of the sound stages with the hockey rink and whatnot? All that looks like shit. Sound stages? Sound stage uh. I'll see your multiple sound stages <laughs> and lower that budget. We're back at the TV studio, and Killian pulls the first audience participant from the crowd to come down and select who's going to be the first stalker. And Killian calls out the name Edith Wiggins. And this character is played by Lynn Marie Stewart. And Lynn Marie Stewart is an actress that some will better know as Miss Yvonne from the Pee Wee Herman show. But she's also Charlie's mom on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, really? I hadn't put that together. There you go. Well, you learn something every day if you're lucky. If you listen to this show, you do. <laughs> uh-huh you I, I can name three things that you learned in this one mostly the janitor stuff edith comes down and she can't decide who she wants to be the first stalker and she finally lands on sub-zero and sub-zero comes out to this giant gong being wrong sub-zero sub-zero is the shit brick house of a man who is asian actor professor toru tanako bo do you know where he made his first appearance in as an actor geez well what is it this no his first appearance was as a sumo wrestler on the hit tv series little house on the prairie oh my god Pa, what is that overweight Asian gentleman doing? That is a show that really lost its focus in later seasons. Which reminds me, Bo, it's time to nice. play the feud again. All right. Bo, I need you to name one of the weirdest plots ever on Little House on the Prairie, okay? Pa and the kids go away for some reason, leaving Ma at home alone. She ends up breaking her leg, drags herself back into the house because it's winter, I believe. Uh, gangrene sets in. She is almost about to cut off her own leg so that she doesn't fucking die when Pa and the kids show back up in time to take her to the doctor in town. I know the episode of which you speak. Show me 
Pa and the kids leave. Gangrene sets in. Ma almost cuts off her own leg. What? Ah, Bullshit look. <laughs> it's not in the top seven weirdest. <laughs> How is that not in the top seven weirdest? I have no other guesses. Yeah, give them all to me. I don't... I only watched like four episodes of that show. And the one where Ma almost cut off her leg was one of them. <laughs> Number seven. Nels Olsen discovers his long lost sister is the fat lady in the circus. <laughs> wow. Hey, is there one with a Loch Ness monster? Shh. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Show me. Local lake inhabited by Loch Ness monster? Oh, you got one, Bo. All right. I remember that one, too. I had almost forgotten that. And then I was like, a fat lady in a circus? Wait a second. Is it ridiculous enough that that Loch Ness Monster memory wasn't a false memory? All right. Go on. Go on. Show me number six. Girl gets raped by a guy in a mime mask. Oh, my God. Show me number five. Albert pretends to be a werewolf to scare a bully. I haven't seen that, but I that will be changed before we record again. <laughs> Show me number three. He had weird lips, didn't he? Anyway. Snake oil salesman shows up with a boy in a cage. Oh, I have definitely not seen that. <laughs> Show me number two. Man adopts baby. Baby turns out to be orangutan. <laughs> And show me the number one weirdest plot ever on Little House on the Prairie. Residents of Walnut Grove blow up town with dynamite in series finale. Wow. What a weird show. (laughs) So Sub-Zero is this large Asian man, and he's also an ice skater, which I was like, why isn't he Canadian? Yeah, this is a real confusing bit of business here. (laughs) Maybe it's because no Canadian would be savage enough to murder people for sport. (laughs) Right. Oh no, you're going to have to go right to the Japanese for that pal. We're, (laughs) we're a nonviolent people. I'll tell you that much right now. You can, you can just go suck an egg. I sorry for the language, but we are not killing nobody on screen. So Arnold and Yafit Kodo and Nerdlinger, they all make their way into the first battle zone. And we get to see cuts of people cheering at like viewing parties. And we see Jesse Ventura. He's high-fiving a young Jim Brown. And they're in this locker room, one assumes surrounded by other stalkers. It's a bunch of shirtless muscle men just sort of sauntering about. Jesse Ventura is <laughs> wearing this blue blazer and he has this big, thick white turtleneck. And he's got this ridiculously perfect quaffed amber hair. It's an appliance. He's he's providing color commentary uh, from the locker room, which looks more like an after party in the dressing room of Exquisite Strip Club in Tampa, Florida, season six, episode three. All right, all right, all right. If I may give an alternate joke there. (laughs) Please. It looks like the VIP room of an XFL game. (laughs) That's a more apt description. I completely agree with that. Ventura says, Killian, the runners have entered the 400 square miles of game zone and anything can happen. You know, I remember when I was a stalker murdering countless strangers in an attempt to satiate my ravenous bloodlust. That'll be right about enough of that. That, says Killian, cuts him right the fuck off. And, for, and, and Jesse Ventura gives him this real what the fuck look. <laughs> he does. 
does. He's like, hey, man, it's in the middle of a story. But aren't you thinking that Jesse Ventura is going to end up being important to Killian's downfall? Or something. Or just important in general. He doesn't matter in this movie one bit. You could edit him out and wouldn't skip a beat. You'd save eight minutes on the runtime. Which is unfortunate. It, like, <laughs> it would be a better movie if he were playing a more central role as like the main stalker or something. Like if he were Fireball. Do you remember when he got elected governor of Minnesota and you were just like, wait, what? And you were like, yeah, Jesse Ventura is the governor of Minnesota. It was like, Jesse Ventura, like the wrestler, the one from Predator. Yeah. How did that happen? Turns out the people of Minnesota wanted someone with some good ideas, good ideas about Bigfoot and the government. <laughs> He's a character. Look, I hunted and killed three big feet. Yes, that's the plural. In the wilds of Minnesota, that's how I got elected governor. You know what you call a group of big feet, right? They're an arch. It's an arch of big feet. <laughs> Their family units are known as pods, like dolphins. You spell it with a Z at the end. I came up with all of that because nobody else would. It's on the files. You can see the files. They're in a Freedom of Information Act. It's your right as an American citizen to be informed. <laughs> About the cryptids running loose in the United States of America. Uncle Sam is on the mat. That's some Governor Ventura shit. Down in the game zone. There's this group of nameless hooligans on motorcycles and they corral Arnold and his pals into this ice skating rink so that they can do battle with Sub-Zero. It's kind of dopey, right? Once we get into these stalkers, you're going to see that they're all identified by single elemental superpowers as their means of killing people. For Sub-Zero, his element is ice. This is the ice level of the game. He comes in and he's skating around and he kind of wings by them all and just kind of knocks them down and uh, spreads them out a little bit, really kind of playing with his food a little bit. Why didn't he just kill them? It's a... I assume it's because it's a television show and he's trying to play to the crowd. He thinks that his win is inevitable. And so he's he's playing it up a little bit. Like he takes a nerdlinger and uses his bladey hockey hockey stick uh -huh. to push him into a net that's kind of a trap that closes around him, question mark. Right. And so then he it turns out he's got explosive pucks. Then he almost is going to swipe his bladey hockey stick at Yafit Koto, but Arnold interrupts him. During this battle, we do cut back to the television studio and Killian is handing Miss Yvonne prizes as Sub-Zero is racking up points. And during this scene, Miss Yvonne gets an ICS home video set of cassettes or something. And then she gets a copy of the Running Man home version board game. Yeah. Did you ever play one of those home versions of a TV game show? We had a home version of the Family Feud, as a matter of fact, that was an enormous pain in the ass to set up and play. Yeah. What do you think was included in the home version of The Running Man as a board game? Just a knife and the like address of a nearby person. I was thinking a <laughs> pair of sewing shears, a Dillinger, six cyanide capsules, and a copy of The Diary of Anne Frank. 
<laughs> I I like the idea like that there would be the the target of the the Running Man the home game wouldn't know he was playing Running Man the home game. It's <laughs> just like, hey, hey, Jerry, nice to see you. What the fuck, Jerry? <laughs> when Sub Zero drops one of his exploding hockey pucks, he gives it a smack and it flies across and it, it blows up and it kind of knocks out Arnold, so he's unconscious. Uh, Yafit Koto is there to save the day. Come on, Yafit Koto, we're counting on you. It, except he can't save shit. No, and is about to get straight up murdered right. by Sub Zero, and then Arnold comes in and is just you know karate chop. <laughs> And then Arnold grabs a piece of wood from the ice skating rink's walled framework that's attached to a string of razor wire. And then Arnold creates a clothesline with it and Sub-Zero skates by and the razor wire gets wrapped around Sub-Zero's neck. And then Arnold just violently yanks the razor wire, which kills Sub-Zero. I really thought we were going to get a decapitation here and it's a real missed opportunity that we didn't as far as I'm concerned. You know, but as a movie, Arnold shouldn't kill anybody. He should survive by his own wits and then the bad guy should die at the hands of their own actions thus establishing arnold as a true hero as opposed to a violent murderer which is what he is in this film but when he does this they cut to arnold on on the screen inside the running man studio and everyone's just really shocked and arnold says here's sub-zero now just plain zero god it's just that's the best you could come up with here's mine hey killian i put sub-zero on ice Way better. Way better. <laughs> Looks like Sub-Zero lost his head. <laughs> right? It ain't that hard, people. The crowd is just stunned and silent. And Richard Dawson does this great, like, he he kind of holds the microphone to his chest. and This is, in my opinion, the funniest scene in this whole movie. When, he's, when he does this, he's like, ladies and gentlemen, this, this is horrible. Words cannot express. A great champion has fallen. We'll be right back after these important messages. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's probably the it's the the best moment of social commentary in the whole film. Absolutely, it's my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, everything else is shit. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've finished the ice level and the boss has been defeated, they just start dumping gas into this room. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh no, we better get out of here. They go save Nerdlinger from his little webbed mousetrap. And Arnold says, that's Sub-Zero. He was a real pain in the neck. And I'm like, is that in reference to the razor wire you wrapped around that man's throat and then violently ripped to shreds, thus ending his life? Yeah, you could see where (laughs) it got into his jugular and the arterial spray is really something on the ice. You can see steam comes up from it it's beautiful we're back at the television studio and killian selects another audience participant to get up this time to pick two stalkers to come out and kill arnold and his two misfit pals and this time it's buzzsaw and dynamo yeah these thyroid nightmares show up dynamo is this giant dude in a suit made out of light up bulbs and also sings the opera because one gimmick wasn't enough for this dude and he can shoot lightning bolts out of his hands and can shoot fucking lightning bolts yeah and apparently the actors sang opera which is why they had him do it 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 doesn't matter at all it's grossberger from stir crazy yeah and he this was his last movie sadly (laughs) his first one was stir Uh. crazy 
<laughs> which is a far superior film on every single level let's talk about buzzsaw yeah uh, buzzsaw uses a chainsaw yeah pretty pretty good he's this bleach blonde crew cut monster of a man he looks like if a raging hemorrhoid came to life and just grabbed a chainsaw <laughs> <laughs> I'm angry and naughty. Don't take a long trip with me. Backstage, one of Killian's producers come up and tell him that Amber uh, just got caught stealing the butcher of Bakersfield raw video. And Killian, the always quick thinking producer, he's like, this is sensational. You know, he's a real opportunist. So in a matter of minutes, Amber is now on stage in her own yellow running woman suit and she's going to be tossing the battlefield as well because the crowd has no idea who this person is right they're just told like uh she's the lover of ben richards aka arnold schwarzenegger and the whole time she's like no i'm not i don't even like that guy <laughs> that's what she's doing she's just screaming on stage like they're lying i don't even know him <laughs> right adios mio and- speaking spanish so she goes through space mountain and and ends up on the road as well then we we cut over to our intrepid heroes of nerdlinger yafet koto and arnold schwarzenegger and as they're running one of the few times you'll see that in this movie the nerdlinger notices that the satellites aren't pointing up uh-huh. Again, Schwarzenegger is just like, who cares about you and your satellites and which way they're pointing? I'll tell you, I'm going to point you right at my fist. <laughs> and then somehow Amber is just magically reunited with them. Like, hey guys, I'm here now. Yeah. I like, you know, the 400 square blocks that we heard about, she just shows up at the pillar of falling rocks uh, where they happen to be located. The nerdlinger is like, hey, we can jam this signal uh, if we get to the center of the game area. Arnold's like, fuck you. You, you can do whatever you want to do. I'm going to get out of here. And then starts walking and then turns around and realizes that they are, in fact, going to the center of the game grid. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll come with you. You don't have to beg. You won't have to make a big scene. At this point, Buzzsaw comes roaring over a hill on a motorcycle. And then Dynamo comes zooming into the movie in what I refer to as the Fatmobile. Yeah, it's a light-up dune buggy. Our foursome gets splits up into pairs of two. Amber and Nerdlinger go one way, and they're pursued by Dynamo in the Fatmobile. And then Arnold and Yafet Koto head down a different path, being chased by Buzzsaw on his motorcycle. And they kind of end up in a giant arena. Arnold and Yafet Koto? Right. And by giant arena, you mean the same soundstage that the ice skating rink was on. Yes. Completely redressed. <laughs> right. In the sense that there's no Asian man with a hockey stick. <laughs> right. So Buzzsaw is about to slice Arnold up. Right. And Yafet Koto <laughs> knocks him out of the way and gets cut in the process, saving Arnold. Uh-oh. And gets cut right in the neck. No, it's across the belly. Is it? I thought it was in the neck. No, he gets cut across the belly because later he moves his hand and he's like, my guts is spilling out. All right, whatever. And uh, (laughs) then Buzzsaw uses Ebola, uh, not the disease, Ebola, to secure Arnold by uh, firing it at him. And and it's like a steel cable attached to the bike. So he's dragging Arnold behind the bike with it. And then as they're going by some rebar, Arnold, quick thinking Arnold is like, oh, I've got an idea. And and ties the cable around uh, some rebar, which 
stops the bike suddenly mm-hmm. and buzzsaw goes ass over tea kettle over the front of the bike right and then these two fight hand to hand to chainsaw against one another as the gladiators that they are again because this is poorly edited and you want to cut away from the action as it builds to a crescendo uh-huh. uh we cut over to nerdlinger and maria conchito alonso who have found the uplink controls question mark whatever and he's getting some code so that they can hack into the satellite so he's getting her to remember the numbers for this code in case something happens to him spoilers he's about to get murdered i think that nerdlinger has a real keen eye for just passwords in general you know but speaking of passwords Uh uh-huh oh we're not playing password okay no no, we're not gonna play password but it's time for us to play the feud again bo i've got the top nine answers on the board and bo here's the question can you name one of the worst passwords that people use that doesn't include any numbers. A password. You're saying the word password? The word password is the password. All right, show me password. Excellent job. Password is the number one answer. You have eight more to go, Bo. Oh, geez. Okay. Their name. Show me their name. Really? Okay. And no numbers. No numbers in these passwords. These are all alphabetic passwords. Uh, A, B, C, D. Show me A, B, C, D. Mm, good guess, but no. Um, Really terrible jokes from Seinfeld. Show me really terrible jokes from Seinfeld. Mm. To save time, here's the rundown. Number two, Sunshine. Number three, QWERTY. Number four, I Love You. Number five, Princess. Number six, Admin. Number seven, Welcome. Number eight, Football. And number nine, Monkey. Mm, Now you know how to get into all my stuff. Monkey and football are in the top nine worst passwords. What does that say about us as a people? I'll tell you, my next password is going to be monkey fucking a football. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite weird expressions. Back to this movie, we cut to Arnold walking over to Buzzsaw, um, who's knocked out from getting ass over tea cuddled, as you called it earlier. Uh, but it turns out that Buzzsaw, you know what? He was just faking, Bo. He wasn't really hurt. He was just playing possum. No. So Buzzsaw is forcing this chainsaw into Arnold's face. And Buzzsaw has a real, like, sly, huh, got you now, Arnold, kind of look. And then Arnold rallies, takes the, the chainsaw, and doesn't just push it back into the dude in the no, that's too civil <laughs> you haven't owned the quick death and then he forces the chainsaw go on down between them i'm listening between buzzsaw's legs oh my then up so that he basically cuts buzzsaw in half dick first <laughs> And Buzzsaw screams, as one might do under such circumstances. Of course. As Buzzsaw cries out in pain, you know, while his dick is being mangled by a chainsaw, his screams go from a normal scream to a more falsetto scream because he has no testicles? Yes, I think that is the implication. That doesn't make biological sense. No. Throughout history, there are recorded instances where some males were castrated in puberty to maintain their high singing register, but 
having your testicles torn asunder by a chainsaw would not automatically make you scream in a higher pitch. Right. Like and all your manhood doesn't leak out from your balls <laughs> when something like that happens. The only time this has ever been pulled off effectively, the I'm screaming to the higher pitch was in, of course, George Romero's Day of the Dead, where somebody's head is pulled off their shoulders. And as they scream because the vocal cords are being stretched out it becomes higher pitched i think it's funny when fletch gets the finger stuck up his ass while he's singing moon river well sure everyone loves that that's understandable and then <laughs> we cut over to Maria Cachito Alonso and Nerdlinger, and he has cracked the code yes which for listeners at home is 18 24 61 b 17 7 no 17 yes Four. Mm-hmm. And then Dynamo shows up and just shoots the Nerdlinger with electricity and he's dead. Thanks for being in the movie, Nerdlinger. You're gone. Bye. Arnold hears Amber screaming and he runs to help her. Um, and he shows up just in time to see Dynamo attacking her with like a yellow electrical shock lightning bolts. Because yellow bolts just incapacitate you. The blue bolts, that'll do you in. Yeah, he, he set his hands to stun. Arnold screams out, hey, Lighthead, hey, Christmas tree. <laughs> what hey thomas edison inventor of the incandescent bulb dynamo takes off after uh schwarzenegger he's he's riding around in the fat mobile in the background the movie decides to bring in a synthesizer version of wagner's ride of the valkyrie to play in the background yeah it's real bad then so he he's in his dune buggy Mm -hmm. Fatmobile. The Fatmobile singing. And then <laughs> as <laughs> and Arnold is like, I've got an idea. I'm going to run up this hill. <laughs> the mortal enemy of the dune buggy. He does that very thing. And Dynamo starts chasing him up this hill, mm-hmm. but it's a bad angle. And he just rolls over. Yeah. So Arnold then goes back down the hill to where Dynamo has, has ended up. And he has this lead pipe and he gives it a, a solid, ah, and then slams the pipe down. But it's beside Dynamo's head. And he says, I won't kill a helpless man. And all evidence to the contrary of mm-hmm. course but uh he, that's what he says and the crowd watching all of this go down just boos it he's just like fuck you kill that fat son of a bitch no his life has value but in this scene it really lays the groundwork as to why it doesn't make any sense that the audience turns and starts to support arnold later they're here for bloodlust and they just this movie just completely misses the mark of shifting the audience maybe rooting for people to get killed as opposed to rooting for arnold to survive the running man they screw that up terribly bad you think he needs to give them a speech like you know when i first got here you didn't like me and i guess i didn't like you too much neither (laughs) but then over the course of this fight (laughs) is that from memory yeah so far because that's where it ran out I thought maybe you just started cracking yourself up. Uh, no, I did, but I also was like, I don't remember the rest of that speech. Maybe if I, <laughs> you can get along, and I can get along, then maybe we can get along. <laughs> Yo, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Also, 
Polly, no more free rides, man. No more robots for you. Arnold and Amber go to check on Yafet Kodo. Remember him? He was in this movie a minute ago. The other member of their merry band of runners. Yeah, and they're kind of like, oh yeah, what the what the fuck happened to that other guy? And they're like, oh, we should go find out. They go and they find him, and his guts are spilling out. And he's like, he's like, hey man, I'm I'm gonna die. You guys need to get the uplink code to Mick Fleetwood and Dweezil Zappa in Quadrant Four. Go to Dweezil Zappa in Quadrant Four. And then Laughlin caps this off by saying, don't let us down. I don't want to be the only asshole in heaven. You know, that guy earlier said to Arnold, I'll see you in hell. Now, Yafit Koto is saying he's going to see Arnold in heaven. Which is it? Weirdly, I'm I'm a bit of a reincarnationist. I really think I'm probably going to come back as something kind of terrible for all the people I've killed. But no heaven or hell. Yafit Koto dies. And immediately, Killian pops up on this random Jumbotron TV screen right behind Arnold. And Killian starts talking to Arnold just directly. And Killian says, hey, Arnold, how about you become a stalker and just kill people for me? You certainly have a thirst for blood and don't mind murdering people as long as they're trying to kill you actively. Arnold considers it for about four seconds and then he's like, he says, I'm going to take that contract and rip up your stomach and rip out your goddamn spine. You're doing what with the contract in your spine? It's a real, what are you going to do? Get the dogs or the bees or the dogs who chew bees at you when they bark at you. <laughs> and everybody around Killian's like, what's... Was that a soft yes or a reluctant no? I, I, I couldn't tell. Yeah, it, I, it's a yes with a but and a no with an if. Killian then gets a call from the Secretary of Defense or something. The Attorney General, yeah. <laughs> There's a real gap between the powers of totalitarianism and this TV network. Because Killian and the network seem to be victims of this larger oppressive police state, right? He's not the guy, he's just a guy. But he's kind of the face of making nice i think again this is not really well fleshed out where this is pretend smart movie you know (laughs) where it's like look you can say words like totalitarian and it applies and that's kind of where the discussion stops you can't scratch too much at that we're a totalitarian story can you please explain more no we cannot the next stalker up is fireball played by a young jim brown i didn't even recognize jim brown in this movie he's got this full head of hair with these weird white streaks running from you know from forehead to the back of his neck he looks like a reverse skunk or like his mother was an omega man something but his father wasn't fireball comes out on stage and he's got a flamethrower strapped to his back and he shows off how far he can shoot flames with his barbecue skills by burning up a a standee of a human being and then we come back to the locker room where we see jesse ventura wait 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 also he has a jetpack what like you've got a flamethrower that's all you get you don't get a flamethrower like Look, Dynamo had the electricity and he sang. Mm-hmm. One of those things didn't matter. You can't, that's like, give him a gun too. He's got a flamethrower gun and a jetpack and also a helicopter. <laughs> Well, jetpacks as transportation was kind of a big deal in the mid 80s. Remember that guy who flew into the opening ceremonies of the 84 Olympics wearing a jetpack? Do I? That man's name was Alan Turner. He is one of my genuine idols. I don't really know that man's name. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So we're in the locker room and Jesse Ventura is appearing to be a little jealous and he pops a pill. You're like, what is that? And then he looked. He looks over at a poster of himself from his glory days. And the poster of younger Jesse Ventura looks more like a luchador without his mask on compared to a murdering maniac featured on this game show. He does look 
like nonsense. Killian goes into the audience and his most loyal fan is Agnes, who's this like old lady. Earlier, he gave her a kiss and told her he didn't want any tongue, which was gross. So he pulls her up and he's like, hey, Agnes, who's going to be the next one to kill somebody? And she says, I think it's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever this character's name is. And then the old lady says, that boy is one mean motherfucker. Right. Oh, it's funny when children and old people curse and swear, isn't it? Unless it's racist, then it's uncomfortable and usually on a national holiday and booze is involved. Or it's Blazing Saddles and then it's still kind of funny. <laughs> then, this is where we cut to the streets and all of the urchins and lowlifes are taking bets. And, and here's the point where they begin to bet on Arnold to be the next person to kill in the show, which I'm like, dude, they're just playing the odds. Yeah, it's 101 odds for Arnold to win. How is that the case? He's killed everyone on the show. No, it should be like Arnold is a one-to-one bet because (laughs) he has callously murdered every, every person other than Richard Dawson and has promised on live television to come kill him too. So who are you going to put your money on? The Globetrotters or the Generals? Hmm. Let me think. <laughs> so Fireball hits the field in a rock junkyard is the best way I could describe it. Uh-huh. Arnold sends Maria Con- Conchita Alonso ahead and is like, all right, I'm going <laughs> to like Donkey Kong style. Just throw some barrels at Fireball for a minute. That's exactly what it is. He kind of gets away and Fireball is looking for him. But Maria Conchita Alonso is hiding by yelling for Arnold and wandering aimlessly through this building. Yeah, she's doing that loud whisper yell. Arnold! Arnold! Speak up. I can't hear you. I don't know who you're trying to get in touch with. She wanders into uh, this kind of locker room where she finds the corpses of the dudes that we saw at the beginning of the movie where Richard Dawson was like, hey, here are the last season's winners. And it turns out there are no winners in the running man, Chad. No. They're all killed. What? (laughs) Yeah, I know. And then Fireball comes in to to this locker room where Maria Conchita Alonso has discovered this. He's about to murder her. And she's like, oh my God, they all died and he's like yeah you too and just as that's about to happen arnold appears from the fucking ceiling like spider-man right ha ha you'll never see me coming and then (laughs) pulls the gas line out of the the flamethrower and i guess drops down or something like the next time you see him he's right side up again but then out of nowhere he pulls a lit flare (laughs) he pulls the flare off of fireball Oh, does he? Okay. Yeah. I know you're around gas. You have to have a flare. And he gets the flare and then says, have a light and throws the the flare at him, which of course explodes. (laughs) And then after it explodes, he says, what a hothead. Yeah. He double dips on the same murder. Mm, With a dry cool wit like that, I could be an action hero. Yeah. Greedy one lining motherfucker that he is. So nice. I ribbed him twice. (laughs) The show calls up Captain Jesse Ventura to go into the arena and kill Arnold and Amber. Finally, the American people are going to hear the truth about stalkers. Ventura shows up wearing this costume made from what appears to be random kitchen utensils (laughs) and an oversized accordion. He looks like Conky from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yes, that is exactly. 
exactly what he looks like. And Ventura says, I won't do it, Killian. I won't do it. This is a sport of death and honor. Code of the gladiators. Killian, again, because he's awesome in this movie, is just like, you're a moron. Get this guy the fuck out of here. And they kick him out because uh, he just doesn't have time for any of this. He's got bigger fish to fry. And then Killian yells at Sven. He's like, and just for some bullshit. And he's like, what's the matter with you? Steroids make you deaf? And then Sven looks a little pissed off and hurt. And then he leaves. Hmm. And... <laughs> And so Arnold and Marie Conchita Alonso are trapped in this building. There's some more dancing going on. Oh, thank God, more dancing. Right, what this movie really needed. Then there's a bit where Killian has the tech guy of ICS, apparently, map Arnold's image over some stunt double so that looks like he and Jesse Ventura are fighting. Right. You know, stupid fighting stunt doubles. Mick Fleetwood then shows up. Yeah, well, Mick Fleetwood shows up down in the steam tunnels with Arnold and Amber. Right. And he's like, come with me, because... And then, so we see the payoff of all that tech stuff where the, uh, on the teletube, it's showing these doctored images of Ventura fighting Maria Conchita Alonso and, uh, Schwarzenegger. Ventura, like, uh, snaps Maria Conchita Alonso's neck and throws her into barbed wire. And then Arnold ends up getting impaled on a wall of spikes. It's fake Arnold. It's not real Arnold. Right. It's not real Arnold. And then you, we also see that it was a stunt double, uh, got killed, uh, in, in this, uh, fake video. Maria Conchita Alonso is like, hey, this is great. Everyone thinks we're dead now. And he goes, no, dummy. Don't you see? Now we'll be hunted down like dogs off camera. They can do anything they want. Then all of a sudden he just decides like, hey, I hear you have a rebellion. I know I've been kind of down on this whole idea for the whole movie, but now it seems like kind of the time to get in. I told Killian I'll be back. And the next time I see him, we'll get to the chopper because it's not a tumor. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, I do like, yeah, I told them I'll be back. I'd hate to be a liar and a killer. That's how you end up in hell, like that guy on the chopper was saying. In all fairness, Arnold says I'll be back in Terminator, Terminator 2, The Running Man, Twins, Total Recall, and The Last Action Hero. Bo, it seems like we're about to wrap up this movie proper. You know what that means, right? A game show? Hold on, shit. Hang on. Fuck, hold on. <laughs> That's right, Bo. <laughs> it's time for us to play for the big money, okay? Okay, all right. So, Bo... All the marbles. We have surveyed 100 people to get mm-hmm. their answers to the following questions all right okay every answer you match will earn you points okay if you get 100 points you and your family will win ten thousand dollars sounds pretty good right that sounds fantastic all right so you know what bo let's put 20 seconds on the clock all right are you ready bo i'm ready here we go start the clock Name a food that depressed bees would serve at a birthday party. Mm, mud honey. Why is seven such a stuck-up number? Uh, because it can wear a hat. Where are my car keys? Uh, have you checked the bowl near the door? Why does Deborah think she's all that? In in fairness, Deborah did get her masters. What was that noise? Oh, that was the cat. You want to go halves on a pie? 
Of course I do. Can I get uh, half with no olives? Do you think that can all possibly true? Oh, absolutely. But maybe not. Airline food. What's the deal with it? Uh, it's it, overrated. Name a flavor that I'm thinking about smelling right now. Lavorge. Have you ever murdered someone even just once? Uh, that's a trick question. I did it twice. Question marks. The only way to end a sentence that demands an answer. No, you can also end with a stern look. Prop comic or ventriloquist? Mm, mm, prop comic. Candy canes or Michael canes? Michael canes. What kind of person prefers mountains or beaches? Uh, assholes. How long did the direction say to microwave this burrito? Uh, 90 seconds, but it works in 80. Van Halen, Van Hagar, Van Wilder, Van Gogh. Van Halen. Why are the Fast and the Furious movies so popular? Because they're fast and furious. Name a theorem better than the Pythagorean. Uh, 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 The theory of love. And how weird was it that once told us he got caught by his mom totally naked in the basement jerking off to the solid gold dancers that's all i could think about during the the dancing scenes in this movie uh. oh, oh, oh my god but you got eight hundred and seventy-five thousand two hundred and forty-two points you and your family have won ten thousand dollars that's great i've got a lot of hospital bills i mean gambling debts <laughs> so the resistance has guns and they decide to just storm the tv station to interrupt the tv signal and broadcast the truth look chad what i have discovered recently (laughs) is that most of the movies we watch the plan is getter (laughs) right there is nothing more complicated about this plan than get her. I mean, it happens all the time in these dumb action movies that we watch. There is no level of sophistication or planning. It's just rush in and kill everyone until we win. I recently read The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, which explores the relationship between Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman to Economist. And Amos Tversky had a line that said, if you really want to get out of a situation, just stand up and leave and you'll find the words will come to you to explain why you're leaving the situation. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're saying that in that spirit of improvisation and necessity, (laughs) that you just rush in with the gun and you'll figure it out exactly all right just make a plan get her and then you know what you'll figure out a way to explain yourself later it may not be good but you'll figure it out chad i have the poor taste to ask this question so there's a point where maria conchito alonso as they're about to storm the castle Mm -hmm. hands to mick fleetwood the original video of the bakersfield massacre right arnold then asks her hey where were you hiding that And she grins and says, it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. So, ass or pussy, Chad, where was that data chip? Look, it's clearly a body cavity. I'm going to say she stuck it up her ass. I think that she's been a heroin mule in her life, and she's comfortable with that. I I don't think there's a wrong answer. It's not where I come down on the subject, but... I have my own reasons for that. Mick Fleetwood then makes a Mr. Spock joke because we live in a world of miracles, Chad. 
<sighs> this movie is almost over, thank Christ. I know. Because Killian is actually ending the movie. He's like, good night, everybody. It's been a great show. Dancers are behind me. That's a good time. Uh, you remember what we said about <laughs> that was That was fun. And then Arnold... <laughs> And Maria Conchita Alonso just <laughs> leads strike teams into the building. And so they're rebel nerds hacking the satellite and have a very polished video prepared that beams into the Running Man Studios. That's like, you thought Damon Killian was telling you the truth. Well, here's the real Damon Killian. Where did they get footage of the three dead contestants' corpses? God only knows, man. I mean, they I saw know. the movie, apparently. It's like when, you know, Dr. T pulls out the script it's that kind of thing <laughs> like and, they went out they ran out on the street and bought a bootleg dvd of it yeah and went to chinatown got a knockoff version called the screen man and <laughs> they show this footage that like why would anybody believe that this is the truth it's it's just re-editing of the footage it would just be like what is that right it, at at best you can hope for like okay so which one is real now like that's a best case scenario is is general confusion <laughs> is if that's your aim success then dweezil zappa bursts into the control room to keep the signal on the air and says a line from one of his father's songs don't touch that dial and then arnold then busts into the studio proper where he says it's showtime like uh richard dawson did at the beginning right and then there's a firefight between arnold and the rebels and the guards in this studio think about that they are security guards at a television studio and these rebels just bust in and just start mowing people down yeah and just like, oh boy, they don't pay me nearly enough to get involved in this shit, Frankie. <laughs> well, they gave us an automatic pistol. They wouldn't have done that if they didn't expect us to use it. Down below in the, the hallways leading over to the studio, Amber somehow got separated and she's wandering around. And then Dynamo, who is not dead, he's just wandering around and um, he's he's like, I guess he's going to attack her. And then Amber says, you know, there's nothing funny about a dickless moron with a battery up his ass. Which I was like, now that you say that out loud, it does sound kind of funny. Yeah. And, and then she does what I call the Maria Conchita Alonso mm -hmm. and just punches him in the dick too. <laughs> right in his part. She, she really has a thing and uh, gets the most out of it. Well, and then how can I describe what happens next? Bo? Things get rapey. This big fat guy in his Christmas tree suit. We see a wide shot and he's got his clothes off. We see his like his underwear and it's like this ill-fitting <laughs> giant pair of tidy whiteies and he's gonna rape her at that man's size everything is ill-fitting <laughs> and then amber grabs a gun and shoots at the sprinkler system and water pours down onto dynamo and then he gets electrocuted by his own suit when it's mixed with water i was like why didn't she just shoot him in the head I, I because she's not arnold schwarzenegger she's not completely bloodthirsty where she has to feel the spray of blood and brain I, I, it feels like you're taking a bank shot when you can just drop that nine ball in the corner pocket real easy. Yeah, see, this is why you should go on the running man and not me. So the ICS <laughs> guards are mowing down civilians now. Mm -hmm. And Arnold's killing them right back. Yep, good for him. Sure. Our and, hero. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll defend the lives of these people who wanted me dead. 
So uh, after Arnold kills everybody in the studio, Killian is kind of creeping around trying not to get shot and dead. And then Arnold says, hello, cutie pie. Because that's what Killian said when they first met. Yeah. Killian then calls in Spinoli Thorson. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, I've got friends. Max, you're my friend. Come in here. And <laughs> it's two Muppet movie references. Slipping them in. And uh, Spinoli Thorson shows up. And kind of looks at Arnold and he then he says, and this is one where the subtitles really held up. (laughs) Paid dividends. And what is it what does he say? I have to go score some steroids. What I heard was (laughs) Yeah, it is unintelligible. (laughs) And that was probably the best take. Otherwise it wouldn't have been in the movie. And so he mutters something to himself and then takes off, leaves the Uh movie entirely. Killian is then pleading with Arnold. Uh, He's like, hey, look, I'm just giving people what they want. Like people, this is the most popular show on television. It's the only show on television. Yeah. Look, uh, this isn't personal. You got to see that. This is just television. And Arnold says, fuck you, and puts him in the rocket and fires him down the tube. Mm -hmm. And then here's another one of those, like, how could he possibly know? Killian goes through Space Mountain, fires out of it, goes through this uh, billboard for Cadre Cola, which is something he pimped, and it immediately explodes. As all yeah. billboards do right. when struck. And Arnold says, that hit the spot. Like, what? That's that's it? Probably Stan Bush sings a love song. The song that actually begins to play is this upbeat synthesizer music. And we hear the love theme from The Running Man, which is Run Away With You. It's also known as Restless Heart by John Parr. And for everybody who doesn't know who John Parr is, which is pretty much everybody, he's the guy who's saying St. Elmo's Fire. The man in motion. Yeah, it, it's 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 basically... It's basically just a different version of the St. Elmo's Fire theme playing during this scene in the film. <laughs> also as this is happening man arnold schwarzenegger and maria conchito alonzo kiss Mm -hmm. in one of the least convincing human interactions ever captured on film no it's like watching puppets kiss (laughs) yeah yeah where she's really trying and he's like i don't understand how you humans press your lips together and get some kind of pleasure out of it It's weird. Then they walk off, like, away from camera towards the back of the studio. Maria Conchita Alonso walking, uh, looking right where she's going, eyes eyes forward. The entire way, Schwarzenegger is just staring at her. Like... (laughs) You're my woman now. You belong to me. And it reminded me, it's the same arm around the shoulder he has in Conan the Barbarian when he's in that cage as a gladiator and they give him a woman for the first time. Right. And he's strangely kind to her, but you also know where this is headed. I don't understand how the end of this movie is attempting to be so upbeat because Arnold is 100% going back to prison. He killed multiple guards in that jailbreak. He shot multiple TV studio guards. He killed Killian. He's a murderer. He lives in a world that has like an iron fist run by the police and the government. He'll be dead before the sun comes up. Right. He'll be strung up his head on a pike alongside Dweezil Zappa and Mick Fleetwoods. And the world will keep on a turning. Except the running man will now be hosted by Ray Cohn, who will eventually <laughs> take his own life. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that's The Running Man. Yes. Not a very good movie. Marginally entertaining. But would you recommend The Running Man to anybody? It's an interesting sort of archive from the 80s. It's very 80s. Yeah. But I kind of recommend it just for the gleeful villain of Richard Dawson in it. Yeah. It's not a particularly good Schwarzenegger film. Like, the action's kind of shitty. He's too young. Like I said at the beginning, he just hasn't matured into the Arnold that you know and love. He's still too stilted and figuring out how to be him. Yeah, he's trying to act, and that's yeah. not where he lives. He no. he needs to stop trying to be another person. It's a marginal recommendation for me, but I know a lot of people, like I said, really have a lot of fondness for it, and I'm not entirely sure why. But what do we have coming up for episode four of this season's theme? Hail to the king, baby. Oh, Chad, put away all the, all the dirty plates and the crumbs. I don't know. This is a terrible intro for this movie. It's a graveyard shift. It's all about some rats and some dudes. What are going to work some overtime killing rats? I've never seen graveyard shift, so I'm looking forward to this. It is a movie about rats. Like Ben? No, uh, you get into uh, look. There are all kinds of rats. You're gonna you're gonna have your blind rats. You're gonna have your mutant rats. Secret of and, Nim. Um, it's more Secret of Nim for sure. Five Hole Goes West. Less Five Hole Goes West. More Ratso. What about that rat from Charlotte's Web that was voiced by Paul Lynn? Templeton. Templeton the rat is a little too kind. Like Templeton the rat seemed like a friend to all, and these rats are not friendly in the least. Okay. But it does have Brad Dourif in it, and that's something. That is something. I don't know if that's yeah. something good or something bad. I think I know the answer to that. I, I think we all know the answer to that. <laughs> so look, come back and see us in two weeks' time. We will have a freshly baked, brand new episode of Pick 6 Movies. As always, like, rate, review, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Pick6movies at gmail.com. You can find us bouncing around on social media. Um, let us know what you think, and uh, uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Bo, any final thoughts on The Running Man? I'm all tuckered out of all the running. I think I'm going to take a little nap. Good for you. Good for you.